0: Hello, I'm Howard Miller, Contributing Editor and Podcast Host for The Daily Journal, and we welcome you to this hour podcast with Adam Murray, Executive Director of the Inner City Law Center. We'll be talking today generally about legal services, but also about the impact that COVID-19 and the burdens that have additionally been placed on legal services because of COVID-19. And we're just very pleased and honored to have with us Adam Murray to talk about these issues. Adam is is the executive director of the Inner City Law Center. And the most important thing, Adam's now been executive director for fewer than 10 years. There's a lot to tell you about him, but what you really need to, should focus on in terms of the job he's done and what it means for the Inner City Law Center, is that in the time he's been Executive Director, Adam has guided the Inner City Law Center from a five-attorney law firm with a $1.4 million budget to a 40-attorney law firm with a $10 million budget. And over the past few years, there have been pro bono attorneys from private firms donating over $35 million worth of free legal services to the Inner City Law Center clients. The Inner City Law Center has especially staked out expertise in dealing with veterans, which Adam made a major priority, and also with homelessness, where Adam has not only served as a legal capacity, but also has been a very significant participant in policy issues relating to homelessness and housing. Adam, welcome to the, broad, to the podcast, and thank you for joining us. My
1: pleasure. Thank you for having me, Howard.
0: Uh, tell us, just to start out, so we have the background, tell us a little about the Inner City Law Center, your background, and how you got involved in legal services.
1: Sure. So it's actually a marvelous story. Uh the, the founding of Inner City Law Center goes back to 1980. An amazing woman by the name of Nancy Minty graduated from UCLA Law School and moved to the Catholic Worker Soup Kitchen uh on Skid Row uh in Los Angeles and lived there at the soup kitchen and just began providing her legal skills and legal talents to folks in the neighborhood who were struggling with various issues. Um And so from the beginning, we've been rooted in the Skid Row neighborhood of Los Angeles, uh, and from the beginning, from Nancy's days up until the current, we've really focused on housing and homelessness issues. So that may be helping a family that's facing eviction and possible homelessness to stay in their home, uh, or at least to maintain stable housing in some way. Uh, we do a lot of representation of tenants who are living in slum housing, forcing slumlords to fix up their buildings, forcing them to pay damages to their tenants. Uh, we do a lot of work with homeless veterans and other folks who are struggling with dis- disabilities who are on the streets trying to connect them with various uh, benefits programs, whether that's VA benefits or Social Security Disability benefits or
0: other benefits
1: that they're entitled to uh, that they should be getting and that can help stabilize their housing situation. So it's, an, it's incredible work, work that I have loved doing. It's been 13 years now that I've been with the organization and, and absolutely love it. It's an amazing group of people that come together to do this work, both on the staff and the board and then also uh, with our volunteers uh, as well, and so it's really incredible. I got my start when I was actually a, a lawyer working at a private firm. I did a case pro bono as, as a volunteer with Nancy Minty. It was a slum housing case, a building in MacArthur Park that had just a parade of horribles with roaches and rats and mold and, and just horrendous conditions. The conditions were actually so bad that uh, a baby died in the building from respiratory failure, a baby who lived in a unit that had no heat, that had a lot of mold, that had the windows nailed shut. Uh, it was just a horrendous situation um, and, and really awful to see and to hear about, and to speak to the to the clients who were involved in, in, in that horror. Uh, but as a new lawyer, I was a new lawyer at the time, the opportunity to work uh, and to make a difference uh, for clients who were were in such horrible straits and to really partner with them. and Asserting their rights uh, and trying to to improve their lives was really rewarding. I got to work with Nancy Minty on that case and a number of other really talented lawyers, and have been blessed to to work at University Law Center now. As I mentioned for thirteen years, so it's an amazing place,
0: uh, and really just an amazing group of people who come together to make it possible. And I
1: could go on and on, Howard. So I, I will stop there and uh, I'll let you direct the conversation as as you see fit.
0: No, it's a great story, and we're always interested in the uh, in talking on the on the podcast about how people's legal careers have been changed by their experience. And, and this is just a great story for young lawyers. I mean, here you are, you made a pro bono commitment. Uh, and because of what you found out in working on the pro bono commitment, uh, it changed your career. You understood where you wanted to go and what you wanted to do. And it's very interesting as young lawyers look forward to what's going to happen in their careers. It's really important to have models of people who learned from their experiences and moved into other areas. And this is a great to, a great model. I'll say historically in terms of Los Angeles, it's so interesting that it was MacArthur Park uh, around there, around the park that did this, because of course that's a very important piece of geography in the history of Los Angeles. The developers uh, had the option after building downtown to go south or to go west and create Wilshire Boulevard and the decision point was at MacArthur Park and the decision to go west on Wilshire from MacArthur Park transformed the city and, and, and so MacArthur Park is a very important geographic place in the history uh, in terms of what has happened there. Of course, it's named after Douglas's father, Arthur MacArthur, uh, not after Douglas. But so you, you get involved in this way. You're involved in Inner City Law Center. And then what are the kind of cases? Now you're executive director of Inner City Law Center. What are the majority of the cases? What kind of cases predominantly come into Inner City Law Center?
1: Well, over the years, um, you know, it's, it's traditionally been a pretty small shop uh, with a handful of lawyers doing really amazing work. Uh, and so it's, it's varied depending on uh, what clients come forward and what the needs are. At the time I walked in the door, it was overwhelmingly a slum housing litigation, uh, shop. The vast majority of the work that was being done was suing from lords, forcing them to fix up the buildings and, and pay damages to the tenants. Uh, Looking back before that, there were times when it was much more focused, say, on public benefits advocacy or eviction defense or other sorts of things. But the moment I walked in the door, it was mostly a slum housing litigation shop. And we've continued that. We now do, you know, last year we recovered almost $7 million for tenants uh, living in, in in slum housing. And at any given point in time, we have 10 to 12 ongoing litigations, uh, mostly in state court. Uh, trying to force buildings to be fixed up or not just trying, but forcing buildings to be fixed up and, and forcing damages to be paid. So we have great track record in that area. But today and over the last decade, we've really expanded back into a bunch of the areas that the, that the organization has traditionally touched on and, and worked in. So we, for example, now have a homeless veterans project that has a number of lawyers and other staff. Uh, most of that work is helping individuals who are on the streets who are veterans who have tried to access the VA system, tried to get access to both the healthcare and the monetary benefits they should be entitled to because of their service and been unsuccessful. And so we come in and appeal those denials and benefits. Uh, in the last few years, we've won 97% of our, our appeals. So we have a great track record at uh, identifying who really should be on benefits and helping them to get on benefits. Those cases can be frustrating because they often take a few years to resolve. Um, so they're not quick. But they're really rewarding because at the end of that process, uh, you have somebody who's been on the streets, uh, who served served our country and ended up on the streets. And oftentimes, in large part, because of things that they experienced uh, during their service uh, and the ability to get them onto the healthcare benefits that they need, the ability to get them thousands of dollars in benefits so they can afford housing, uh, sometimes getting them VASH vouchers or connected with the GI Bill. Um, just lots of, of benefits at the end of that process that are incredibly rewarding to be a part of. Um, so that's just one example, uh, of the sorts of work that that we're doing currently. But, but before,
0: think. before you move on to others, I know you really placed an emphasis on representing veterans. You really were a person that led the way and the inner city law center led the way, as I remember, not only in veterans representation, but in training people to make administrative appearances, uh, in the veterans administration to move the process along. I mean, I, from what I know of the history, you're a little modest on this. It seems to me that it's the inner city law center by devoting its resources to the veterans issues and, and helping people on the administrative process that really has made a dramatic impact, uh, not just in the cases you've had, but in the model that you've created uh, for for helping veterans uh, in, in in legal services.
1: I think that's right. And, and I think it's, um, you know, we have seven attorneys I think, now, who work on that project and, and do that work as staff in Inner city law center. But we rely very heavily on, on pro bono assistance as well from folks at firms who, who we help to train up and get certified. You know, In addition to navigating the VA bureaucracy, we also very often, for a lot of the folks who are on the streets, the barrier to them obtaining those benefits is the discharge status that they have from their military service. And very often that discharge status is tied up in things that they experienced when they were in service as well. Um, and mental health issues often that they were struggling with while they were in service. So there's a whole lot of back work that needs to be done to make those cases effective, but you're spot on. And it's one of the things we pride ourselves on inner city, at inner city Law Center is we, we very zealously fight for and represent the clients that we take on and get fabulous results. Uh, in the vast majority of our cases. Um, But we also really look for opportunities to try to change the conversation and to encourage others to step up in various ways. And so the veterans arena is one area where I think our voice has been important and helpful in encouraging others to do this work as well uh, and to put more focus on, you know, what should ideally be the situation is nobody should be on the streets uh, any at any point in time and living on the streets, but especially those who have served their country uh, and are on the streets, in often because of that service, that's really atrocious to see. And it re- should be relatively low-hanging fruit to try to fix that problem.
0: I think Before one the of the things we've all learned in legal services is that uh, low-hanging fruit is often a myth because of what's involved. You know, I don't think people realize the number of people in the United States that are eligible to be represented uh, by entities through legal services. The numbers I've seen is 60 million people, about 20% of the population income levels and other things are beneath the federal poverty level formula uh, that are eligible to be represented and that the access the justice gap studies that have been done by numerous organizations indicate that there may be as many as 75% of those who are eligible and have especially civil legal problems that in fact wind up not being represented so the demand here and the gap in capacity to meet the demand, unless I misunderstood the statistics, uh, is enormous. Is, is is that your experience also?
1: 100%. In every single area that we work in, the the need for our services is, is so far outstrips what we can do. Um, you know, we help about 400, uh, four, 450 maybe veterans a year that so we serve, almost veterans, but on any given night, it's about 4,000 in the county of Los Angeles. So you can do that across every area we work in, and it's particularly heartbreaking because when we are able to get involved, when we can take on a case, it makes a huge difference. But the benefits that we can achieve for veterans when we take on a an eviction case, for example, if that if that tenant goes forward without goes forward with their eviction case without representation there's about a 99 to 100% chance that they're going to get evicted that's what always happens if they don't have representation when we get involved in a good 50% of the cases we're able to stop that eviction and we're able to have that family remain in their home and even in the cases where we're not stopping the eviction we're able to often to put it on a different pathway where the tenants have time to move out they don't get their you know they don't get uh, a ding on their record having an addiction. They can sometimes get relocation benefits. There's a whole host of things, even in the cases where we don't keep that person in their home. So it just makes such a huge difference, which makes it all the more heartbreaking that the vast majority of people who need these services and could benefit from these services and have incomes that mean they should be qualifying for these services aren't getting them because we're just not funding them sufficiently.
0: Well, one of the things that you've done is indicate the increase in pro bono representation. Uh, you've brought in great many Firms and lawyers that help you in these cases—that uh, has been an important part of this. But do you still have need for more help from the private bar? Could you use more pro bono help from the private bar if you trained and to work on these cases?
1: Absolutely, uh, and we're actually seeing a really heartening uptick uh, in the last couple months, coming out of some of the Black Lives Matter uh, movement and um, partly. Some of the stuff related to COVID as well, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But we are seeing an uptick in more attorneys reaching out to us and asking to be trained, asking to take on cases. At the moment, what we have the biggest need for, um, and it's probably particularly folks at big firms who are most useful for this, but we need partners to litigate our slum housing cases with us. We have a number of cases that we're ready to file. Um, and and we do all of those cases, our staff does them in conjunction and in partnership with a private law firm that comes in pro bono uh, and helps to litigate the case. So that's a particular need we have right at the moment. Uh, but it has actually been heartening to see an uptick in people reaching out to us, as I said, literally in the last six weeks, two months.
0: Well, in terms of that, I mean, this is so interesting to me just as an aside in terms of the culture of the legal profession uh, in which, uh, you know, continuing doing pro bono work is considered so much a part of the profession. And in fact, where the firms have, have learned that a large part of their attractiveness is the kind of pro bono work they've done. You know, my first experience with legal services, just as a personal aside, was when I represented California Rural Legal Assistance when they when they opened. This was a long, long time ago. But they were actually sued by a local bar association to keep them from opening. I mean, it was a totally different legal culture around providing legal services. Uh, managed to involve a wonderful lawyer not known to as many people as he should be, Herman Selvin, uh, to be co-counsel in that case and ultimately had the office open. But it's the change in culture uh, over the past years that we now have uh, the culture of firms wanting to participate. And tell me what the effect... I mean, we've seen the court closures and so much being done online in terms of involving senior and other people. Uh, I know that the recent appropriation to legal services... Uh, through the CARES Act, that the, the first this, the first act to deal with the financial implications of COVID, I think included uh, some money for legal services, fifty million dollars, and two million of that was for developing teleworking capacity. Have you found that that working online in this environment has been something that you can do and, and and have an effect with?
1: So I'd say a couple things in response to how, First of all, most of the federal money that flows to legal services flows through the Legal Services Corporation. Um, and industry law center does not get that funding. There's a couple entities in Los Angeles, neighborhood legal services and legal aid foundation of Los Angeles, both of which do great work with, with that funding. Um, so we, we are not a recipient of, of that or of the particular money that you reference, uh, much of which is going to more rural programs, um, e- e- even the current COVID, uh, edition that's been added on. But, but to go to your point about the remote work, yes, we are finding, and it's actually something I, that we've been a bit, surprised by is the degree to which our current clients are uh, have been able to plug in and stay connected with us uh, remotely. Um, we, have, you know, we have so many clients who are on the streets, who are very precariously housed, um, who are struggling in lots of different ways, and sometimes just staying in touch with our clients in the best of times is a challenge. Um, but particularly for our housed clients, um, they do tend to be home a bit more at the moment, um, and that has actually made some of the contact easier. Um, so we, we've pretty much transitioned to doing as much as we can remotely. We still are meeting with clients and having clients come in and occasionally going to court on things, but um, the vast majority of it is remote, and we've found that to be fairly uh, effective. Um, it would be interesting if the courts start opening up more to see how that changes, and I also think it's been much more effective with our existing clients. where We have relationships. They know who to contact. They want to stay in contact with us. They trust us. Uh, And I think as we move forward, I know as we move forward, it it is already being
0: harder uh, as
1: we connect with new clients. It is harder to to build those relationships and to build that trust.
0: I've had this discussion with others in terms of uh, access to law to lawyers online and the fact that people who are homeless or or people who may not be familiar or in uh, various areas. And there has been talk uh, we've had that discussion about whether, in fact, there's room uh, to open uh, what amount to very modest kiosks with uh, with online connections and bringing people into those uh, into those locations simply to make the connection online, so they don't have to battle transportation problems or otherwise be connected. And it seems to me, that, again, there's been discussion about how how you reach people who are not that familiar with technology, but who really badly need legal services. And who, if they made the online connection, would be people that you'd want to represent?
1: Yeah, so we're doing a bunch of that. Both of our offices, we have two offices at the moment, and both of them are set up in ways that clients or potential clients can schedule a time to come in. They can sit in front of a computer screen and Zoom with one of our uh, one of our attorneys. Um, so without really having to have a lot of interaction, they can plug. We give an electronic way for folks to plug in and give what they need. Um, I'd also highlight that a lot of it. A lot of what we're doing currently, which is usually the case, but even heightened at the moment, is running through a bunch of our social service partners. So, for example, there's a a program in Los Angeles called Project Room Key that is trying to house, the target is 15,000 of the most vulnerable uh, folks, folks who are vulnerable to COVID. It tends to be uh, folks who are older, folks who have serious health issues who are on the streets and put them into hotels here in Los Angeles, and we are working with the uh, the government agency, LASA, and with the various social service organizations that are staffing those hotels uh, to connect on a one-on-one basis with each of the people they're putting into those hotels to screen them for legal needs uh, and to see if we can help remove barriers and put those individuals on a pathway to housing so that when they leave, uh, need to leave the hotels, they're leaving into the housing and not leaving back onto the streets. So, But there's a great instance where we've got a fairly captive audience. These folks are living in the hotels. They are uh, connected with a social service organization that is seeing them daily. Uh, and so we're working through that organization to make sure that they're connected to us electronically um, to do both an assessment and then hopefully a, a representation wherever it's needed um, to try to address their legal issues.
0: And it wasn't a reason to, to uh, come back around in this discussion. In terms of, of lawyers at firms now... Uh, volunteering or being in touch with you to add their expertise and to work with you. I mean, if you're dealing with, with clients already online in the connection, and there are lawyers and firms, senior lawyers or others who would like to be helpful, in many ways, the fact that they can reach out to you online and do, do a great deal of what otherwise would be done online uh, in, in the combination of online connections, in many ways, makes it a little easier for those lawyers to reach out to you and say, look, I want to be part of this process, because maybe I'm sitting at home right now or I'm not going to the office often or I have some extra time and I can do this with you online. And, and that may be that may open an opportunity for some people, people who may be listening to this podcast or others uh, to reach out to you and, and become part of the solution to these issues.
1: I think that's exactly right, Howard. And in fact, we have been scaling up our trainings that we're doing, which are you know, traditionally we do mostly in person but we've been recording them uh, and uh, having a bunch of people participate in them and then making it available uh, to folks to go through them online as well. So um, there's lots of stuff that can happen a bit more efficiently or at least effectively uh, in the current moment um, that in some ways makes it easier for folks to plug in.
0: Well, before we talk about homelessness, I do want to talk about a fair amount with you about homelessness because you've done so much work in it and you really have an expertise and impact here that, that equaled by few people. But let's talk about tenants for the moment, people who are housed as tenants. The unlawful detainer courts basically have been closed. Uh, we've had local restrictions on on, on those actions as well. Uh, but there's going to be a flood when this opens up, isn't there? I mean, when the courts start to function, however they start to function, however the unlawful detainer courts start to function, there's going to be an absolute flood of cases in terms of volume per time available. Uh, to deal with tenants and how, how are you going to deal with that?
1: It's a huge, uh, looming challenge, Howard, that, uh, is, is very worrisome for what it's going to mean for those tenants and also for, uh, homelessness as well. Um, so at the moment, most of the UD processes are stayed or stopped. Um, There's a handful of courts, a handful of cases that the local courts are talking about what is the process for getting going again, stuff that was already filed. Um, and so that's in the works. And there's a bunch of conversations with the court and among the various parties involved about what will go on with those cases. But that's really the tip of the iceberg. Uh, it's really what you're referring to, which is once the courts begin issuing summons again for unlawful detainer matters. That and the floodgates are going to open and the estimates are hundreds of thousands of folks um, are going to be struggling to pay their rent um, and or have been struggling to pay their rent and will be vulnerable to eviction and enormous numbers of them vulnerable to homelessness as well. So there's a lot of pieces to that. You know, One I would throw out that people should be aware of, particularly given this is a lawyerly crowd, is the main thing holding back that tie is an emergency rule that's judicial counsel uh, put in place that stop the issuing of summonses across the state. Um, and as the rule is currently written, it stays in place until 90 days after the governor's emergency order is lifted. Um, so we have a stay as long as that stays in place. The legislature is looking at what should be the rules as we move forward, and hopefully we'll make some decisions about that between now and year end, whatever structure needs to be in place. Um, but regardless of what they put in place, unless we have some significant ways to look at rent and mortgage, uh, uh, forgiveness on a significant scale. Um, we're going to be facing a huge tidal wave of, of evictions and therefore a huge tidal wave of homelessness, uh, once that process starts up again. So it is something that we and our partners are spending a lot of time trying to staff up, trying to get people trained, adding new folks, looking at various sort of mechanisms that can be scaled up, whether it's use of electronic, uh, Answer technology and other sorts of things um, to figure out how we can, as effectively as possible, address this. But it's it's a huge looming crisis that really we should be nipping in the bud by forgiving that rent and forgiving the associated mortgages, um, postponing at least those mortgage payments significantly, um, and not enough people are talking about it.
0: Well, but uh, to to the extent you've had conversations with courts, I don't want to ask you about any confidential or otherwise conversations you don't want to relate, but the longer you, this goes, 90 days after the end of the emergency order, given what's happening uh, with the COVID the case count, uh, that may be sometime in the future. Uh, and the longer it, it stays, the greater the flood will be. Uh, and how, how will the courts handle this? I mean, still, every unlawful detainer no matter, has to be heard in court. Uh, how will the courts handle, if you wind up, you mentioned hundreds of thousands how will the courts look at L.A. County alone? How will the few unlawful detainer courts in Los Angeles County handle tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of cases, if they all hit the court within the same short period of time because suddenly the summons can be issued?
1: Yeah, it's, it's going to be a huge challenge, Howard, and I, I think I know the courts are struggling with that and thinking about that. I, I have not heard a good answer, because I don't think there is one. I just don't think we have the resources we don't have the resources on the legal services side to represent everybody who's going to need it. The courts don't have the resources to, to process those cases in the way that's required by statute in terms of the timelines. Um, it's going to be a disaster. Um, and also just fundamentally underlying it. You know, we've got this COVID crisis that's going on and the end result cannot be, should not be that hundreds of thousands of tenants are kicked out of their homes and end up on the streets. I mean, that is just a disaster. So again, what's really needed is not so much a legal response, but an underlying policy response that says rent is forgiven for those times for folks who cannot pay it because of COVID and the mortgages that the owners of those properties have to pay is not due or is due at the tail end of their mortgage. Like There's lots of different ways that could be structured. But we need to be talking about solutions like that because there is no good answer to what you just asked.
0: But let's, uh, you know, that, of course, the policy ultimately is embodied in, in legislation. Uh, and if we're really talking about 90 days after the emergency order, it I don't think it's unrealistic to think that the stay will remain in effect through the rest of 2020. I mean, if, if the emergency order is lifted uh, on September 30th, uh, it, it, any time after September 30th, the 90 days will run. And given the numbers, we don't know when that will happen. So what are the discussions with the legislature? I know there are discussions substantively, as you've said, about rent forgiveness, and that raises questions that others come in about the impact on landlords and the loss of property, residential property. But are there discussions about procedural changes for unlawful detainer and, and tenant cases that might help deal with, with the extreme number that will be coming?
1: So um, not much, no. I think there, there are two main bills. One is a bill sponsored by Assemblymember Chu out of uh, San Francisco, I believe, um, that would, uh, and it's been a little while since I've looked at it, so I don't know exactly where it sits at the moment, but but basically it would, uh, it would uh, limit a landlord's ability to evict people because of non-payment of rent. Um, during the crisis. And so what it would say is tenants haven't been able to pay this rent. You can go and collect it through the normal collection processes that you do when a debt is owed. Um, there may be some tweaks to that, uh, um, that this bill is proposing, but generally speaking, that's the process. Don't kick people out of their homes because they couldn't pay rent during the COVID crisis. Um, so that, that's one bill that's out there. There's also a bill out there by Senator Atkins on San Diego, um, that tries to look at um, some tax credits that landlords could tap into if they agree um, to waive rent for tenants. At this point, they get some tax credits down the line. So there's a number of efforts to try to tackle it. I am, We have been saying that a number of things should happen around the process, including extending the time to answer, extending the time uh, at which the, the, the trial needs to happen in these cases. There's some things that need to to elongate the process and make it easier to manage. Um, but I'm not aware of anybody who's picked that up or actually is thinking about that as, as actual policy fixes at this
0: point. But it, so if, if all we do is is focus on uh, restricting evictions, uh, then the tenants still are, are liable for the rent and lawsuits could be brought and, and summons issued to obtain money judgments and, and suddenly people are getting these large amounts of suits asking for money judgments instead of eviction, doesn't that create its own range of problems in terms of helping people? It,
1: it absolutely does. It, it is not the ideal situation, uh, it's not the ideal s- solution. Um, you know what? Again, what's really needed, and it just doesn't seem to be political appetite for it, is a true waiver of rent um and in concert with that you need to have protections for the landlords who then aren't are receiving that rent and what does that mean for what's doing their mortgages um there is a lot of support that's been going out at the federal level and otherwise to the financial institutions through this crisis uh and bolstering the health of our financial sector through this um which is uh, makes sense in a lot of ways but that needs to be tied to them also working with the mortgage holders Uh, in a very explicit way to ensure that that they are not uh, hurt by this crisis in a significant way. And that needs to trickle down to the tenants as well. You need to be keeping people in their homes. You need to be making sure that they don't have some huge uh, debt burden because of this crisis uh, coming out of this or they don't get evicted into homelessness. You need to be making the the landlords whole and then you need to be uh, supporting the financial institutions as we have been doing. What tends to happen in these situations is we just do the financial institutions piece and all the other pieces sort of fall out as they do. Uh, and that's a recipe for hundreds of thousands of more people on the streets.
0: Yeah, no, We found that out in 2008, in the crisis of 2008, where essentially uh, the people who were being affected from their homes from non-judicial foreclosures were not given protection, even though in many cases uh, creditors and others were, were, were given help. And uh, But really, I think what, maybe what we have to start looking back to and become familiar with, are the old biblical notions of maybe once in a while you need to think of the concept of a jubilee uh, for certain debts? Uh, yes. In in terms of making the society whole, uh, and that I think I think that has that been part of this discussion? Have people talked about jubilee as a as a moral religious concept in terms of dealing with this?
1: I have not heard that, Howard. I love the I love the concept, but I have not heard
0: that. So we have the. I'm interested. Just one other question on, on, on the procedural aspect. You know, it's really interesting. If, if um, in terms of procedure, and everyone who's litigated cases, you know, I know, and all lawyers know that substance is there. There are they're, they're three critical elements. You need a lawyer. Without a lawyer, it's basically as though the statute and laws do not exist. You need the substance of the law. But in so many cases, the procedure determines the strategic interests and and what happens. And so if if a landlord, uh, traditionally before COVID and before we reach this crisis, uh, eviction, sends out a three-day notice to quit. Uh, And of course, if there's a lawyer on the other side, there can be defenses and delays, but still in all, it's not a normal lawsuit. It's not filing a complaint. It's not serving the summons. It's not 30 days to answer. Uh, It's not going through a discovery process. It's a very accelerated procedure. Uh, that's also true of non judicial foreclosures, uh, whether the non judicial foreclosures uh, give way and give up the right to a deficiency judgment or not. And so we have these very efficient procedures looking just at the landlord tenant on one side of the equation. On the other hand, if before a tenant receives a notice to quit, there has been a breach of the covenants of habitability and you have terrible living conditions, and the tenant brings a lawsuit on that basis. There's no accelerated procedure unless you're you, unless you can qualify for the, some kind of uh, ex parte or otherwise preliminary injunction. You have to go through the normal serve the process answer. So is is anyone talking about addressing or or how this developed this imbalance and procedural advantages uh, between one side and the other of these disputes?
1: There's not enough conversation about that. You know, in in one one just clarification, how you know there is a. The three-day notice is, is often how it starts. Um, if the tenant does not move out with that, then the next step for the landlord is supposed to be filing an unlawful detainer complaint and serving it. And then we can look at that. But, but that's a very, as you point out, it's a very... I,
0: I know, you don't leave after three days, but even the UD right. complaint process is, is hugely fast. accelerated.
1: Correct. It's hugely accelerated, which does a number of things. One, it reduces the opportunity
0: to really
1: to get a lawyer to address these issues, to, to flesh out these issues. Uh, to make your case in a, in, in a way you would usually have in, in most sorts of civil disputes. Uh, and two, it forces the court to focus resources on this, because this has to be put to the front of the line relative to other things. Um, I think that is largely uh, uh, a function of the history and the assumption traditionally in unlawful detainer courts that we go up against all the time, which is an assumption that people have that, of course, these Landlords are probably in the right, and the tenants are not. and This person probably needs to move out. That is usually the starting point for most people who come to these cases. Why, why would the landlord file something if they're not, you know, if they're not in the right here? Um, but as I said, literally in half the cases, we stop the evictions from happening. So that is not uh, what ultimately how these ultimately play out when there's a lawyer involved. But I think it's taken the courts a while, and I think they're still in the process of getting their heads around that. Um, they still often come to these many judges come to these cases assuming. That the vast majority of people probably should be evicted. Um, and so there's not a huge appetite, I think, for a more involved process. But, ah, they're pretty simple cases and it's pretty straightforward, uh, is, is the perspective. And I think it's just not accurate. I think these are often, there's often lots of defenses, as you point out, the habitability defense. If the landlord's not keeping the building up as they should be and hasn't been doing that for a while, chances are the tenant shouldn't have been paying the rent they paid for years um and so there's maybe money that goes the other way around um but you need time to develop that uh and you need time you need a lawyer as you point out to develop that so I, I it's something certainly that we say a lot but again i haven't seen a lot of traction on uh changing the process and making it align more with civil disputes more generally which is where i think it should go um i i don't think it makes sense to have an expedited process that's that's abbreviated and expedited in these sorts of cases, I think they should be treated like civil litigation more generally. Um, and this may be a moment where people are more open to that conversation because otherwise the courts are going to be overwhelmed having to focus on these cases. It's a little bit like what happens with the civil-criminal distinction, right? The courts have statutory requirements and with respect to criminal cases that they generally don't have with respect to civil cases, so those get the priority. Um, and that may make sense if it's somebody's liberty that's being jeopardized um, but it makes less sense, I think, in this situation.
0: Well, let's talk then. i That's a separate, I mean, there's no way, and we've mentioned it, and it's worth repeating. There's no way to fully describe the, I think the word tsunami is, is not inappropriate here. If we go to 2021, uh, because of the 90 day after the emergency stay, and all the unlawful detainer cases, in the state, but just focusing on LA County for the moment or the statewide, have been stayed. And suddenly all those cases, the summons issue, uh, that will be a challenge to the judicial system and the justice system that is very different, I think, than any other challenge uh, we've had to face. You're talking about where people live. You're talking about evicting them from where they live. You're talking about a process that's required, that there simply will not be court capacity to deal with and a demand for legal representation that it probably will not be possible to meet. So I I think I know the legislature is talking about this and so much has been affected by COVID-19 and how we have to deal with it. But this is not this is a major issue. Uh, and that's why I'm so glad you've been with us to talk about it. This is a major issue for our entire system of justice uh, and how we deal with these kind of fundamental issues. And I don't think it can be underestimated in terms of, of what's involved here. But it's, all, it's also connected to homelessness because, and that's what I want to turn to specifically, before COVID hit, well, I want to talk about the impact. There, there are two impacts now that will happen in addition Well, one will be the impact of COVID itself, and the other will be the impact of what can broadly be called regulations that followed COVID, like the stay on the UDs. But what was the homeless situation even before COVID? Let's go to January of 2020. What kind of issues were you wrestling with? You were right at the center of of, of the homelessness issue.
1: Yeah, so let me, I can say a few words about, let me, if I can, how, just to close out the last conversation for people who are listening, just two things that really quickly that might be of, of interest. One is that the Judicial Council actually proposed getting rid of their emergency rule recently. And there was a bit of an outcry about it and they stepped back from that, but they've clearly indicated they want the legislature to deal with this issue. But interestingly, when they thought about getting rid of it, they did not honor the 90 days. So their proposal actually would have been less than 60 days, you know, changing the rule. So I just want to say that because although I agree it should be at least 90 days out given the rule that's in place, there have been at least some proposals that would would happen faster than that is one thing, uh, and the second is just and this varies a lot depending on what where people are in the state, but um, a lot of the rules that are in place locally about um, people not being able to be evicted based on non-payment of rent for the number of places that pass those rules locally have, for example, in LA County. So they've said that tenants have the right to to have a year to repay that COVID-related rent. So when the UDs open up, when the process opens up again, it's not like landlords um, at least should, not that they won't, but they shouldn't be dinging people in many instances for past rent that hasn't been due. But moving forward, they'd be able to do that in many instances. We just wanted to throw those caveats out.
0: No, thank you. And I'm glad about the discussion about the judicial council because, you know, in a crisis, there have been extraordinary powers granted to the judicial council and the judicial council has really worked very conscientiously here. The chief justice in a very difficult position has worked conscientiously and I think effectively to deal with these issues, but things are subject to change, but also the issue of what local jurisdictions have done. I mean, there's not a minor legal issue of whether, uh, those uh, pieces of, of, of those enactment by local jurisdictions can essentially amend the, the California, Codes passed by the legislature—that's going to be hotly litigated—and uh, again is just one of the things we'll have to deal with. So let, let's let's turn now to the homelessness. January of two thousand twenty, before COVID, what 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 were the homeless challenges that you were facing?
1: So in January two thousand twenty, we were already seeing pre-COVID a huge increase in homelessness. Um, the homeless count in LA County was up again 12% this year. That's on top of a 12% rise the year before. So continuing to see uh, enormous numbers of folks falling into homelessness. The number currently is estimated that every day, uh, again, pre-COVID, 207 individuals in the county of Los Angeles managed to work their way out of homelessness, but 227 end up falling into homelessness. It's that delta. It's that 20 additional people every single day that is driving our increases over time uh, in homelessness. And that increase is largely being driven by the disconnect between what people are paying for their rents, which continues to, to skyrocket, and what they are making in terms of their incomes, which continues to stagnate or many, uh, yeah. stagnate or many inches actually decrease. I,
0: I'm going to interrupt you if I can just to reemphasize or to ask you to emphasize that and tell us that again, because there's so many discussions as the homeless count goes up despite the efforts and money that had been dealt with a place to dealing with it, that, oh, well, people are coming here simply because of, of, you know, it's kind of the magnetic effect argument. And so I just want to focus on that. The, the increase that, from, that leads to the net increase in homelessness is driven predominantly or driven in great extent to what's happening with the level of rent compared to income. Did I, did I hear that correctly?
1: That's 100 percent correct. If you look, if you if you survey people who are homeless in Los Angeles and you ask them where they're from, if you ask them where they were last housed, all those sorts of questions, it is overwhelmingly a local issue. Uh, in fact, the demographics, the last time I looked at the demographics of who who is currently homeless and compared it to the demographics of people who are housed in Los Angeles, the people who are on the streets are actually a bit more from Los Angeles than the people in housing. Uh, that is, they're more likely to have been born here. They're, they're, they've been here longer in terms of the amount of time they've been in the state, those sorts of things. So, of course, there are lots of people on the streets who come from elsewhere, just as there are lots of people in housing in California and in Los Angeles. We're a magnet in a lot of ways for a lot of reasons. Um, but it's not our homelessness challenges are not uh, an imported issue. They are a local homegrown issue. And it's overwhelmingly in the last decade, rents have gone up in Los Angeles County by 32%. And venture incomes have only gone up by 3%. It's that disconnect that more than anything else describes why, despite uh, lots of really effective investments, our homelessness count continues to rise.
0: And what has happened now since COVID, since the impact of COVID starting in February, March, April, and May? So it's really
1: hard to get a read because we don't have ongoing counts. We don't we don't know exactly what's going on with the numbers. Um, I would say the conversation we just had a moment ago about the staying of the eviction process uh, has been a huge uh, uh, help in not having inflow into homelessness in the same way that we usually do. And I think it would be very interesting to see what the numbers bear out as we move forward. And I also think the project I mentioned earlier of Project Key, which is at the moment, it's a little shy of 5,000 people, but the target is 15,000 people who are currently on the streets who are particularly vulnerable. Getting them into hotels that we can then transition those folks into housing, uh, and that's the most vulnerable people—the oldest and, and sickest of the folks who are on the streets. I think that's a huge potential upside. But the worry is about what's coming once the eviction process. So it goes back sort of to an earlier conversation, uh, and there's a huge racial dimension to this, however, that I think people don't talk about enough. You know, if you look at who's on our streets on any given night, 34% of the people who are homeless in LA County on any given night are Black. Um, only 8% of county residents are Black. And if you sort of go up the stream to uh, who's in housing, uh, recent numbers that I saw said uh, only 46% of Black renters in California are highly confident that they can pay rent this month, which means 54% of Black renters are not confident that they can pay uh, rent which is not surprising because uh, the estimate is that 47% of black Californians are extremely rent burdened, meaning that they pay more than 50% of their income uh, on rent. Uh, and that's pre-COVID. Um, so if you know, half the people basically uh, in that category are paying uh, at least half of their income on rent, you have COVID come along, which we know is disproportionately hit the incomes of folks uh, at the lower part of the uh, of our income ladder. Um, Those folks are really struggling to pay rent uh, and in great danger of being evicted and onto the streets and exacerbating the issue.
0: So these these discussions are connected because you're talking about the impact pre-COVID, and this goes right back to what we talked about, about suddenly if tens, if not hundreds of thousands of unlawful detainer summons get issued and we suddenly have a large number of people being evicted from their housing, the numbers of homelessness will then... A skyrocket uh, well beyond any kind of increase we've seen previously. Is that, a, is that a fair estimate of what of what would happen if we don't effectively deal with the unlawful detainer crisis?
1: Oh, I'm a pretty good sleeper generally, Howard, but that's the thing that keeps me up at night is, is where are we headed uh, with this eviction process and what does that mean for possible flooding of huge numbers of people onto our streets. Yeah. Uh, and huge increasing uh, numbers of people experiencing homelessness. It, it's a heartbreaking uh, concern. Um, you know, one thing, that, another thing that I think people don't talk about enough when we talk about homelessness is the health effects of being homeless. Uh, people living on the streets um, are 10 times more likely uh, to die than people living in homes. Um, before COVID was hitting, we had three people a day on average dying on our streets in Los Angeles. Um, the average age of death was 48 uh, for people dying as opposed to an average age of death in the state of about 80. So, um, you know, the statistics go on and on. I mean, the average woman who spends a year on the streets will experience more violence in that year than the average American woman does in her lifetime. And just on every dimension you look at, it is so horrendous to your mental and physical health uh, to be living out on the streets. Uh, and the idea that we have 66,000 people doing that pre-COVID the idea that we could be facing a tsunami of new folks being evicted and onto the streets is just a heartbreaking concern that, frankly, we're not doing nearly enough to focus on and address.
0: Of course, the health thing is compounded by the fact that the number of people that have lost employment and because of losing employment have lost their health insurance. Uh, now, if they're tenants not only face eviction, but they're, whatever the consequences are, have lost uh, health insurance that they may have had to cover with whatever... Uh, whatever issues arise. So the legislature, it, it seems to me, one effect, one consequence of our, our discussion, a really serious discussion about real-life impacts in California and Los Angeles about what's happening, that these are beyond legal representation issues. These are major policy issues for the legislature and governor uh, to deal with. Uh, they cannot be solved simply, though increasing legal representation is an important part, as we've seen, is a critical part, but there's no solution simply by increasing legal representation. Even if every person affected somehow magically had a lawyer, the the uh, the bad effects would still be there. So ultimately, what you've raised are a set of very basic, it almost makes them sound too rational, anodyne to talk about them as policy issues. They're really issues of basic human effects and damage. This is for the legislature and the governor, ultimately, is it not?
1: I think you're spot on, Howard. You know, if you you want to end homelessness,
0: whether that's for an
1: individual, for a uh, family, for a community, you have to ask, what is the pathway to long-term stable housing? That's the question you have to ask and answer. So we do that individually for our clients. We try to figure out what are the barriers and how do we get them there. Um, But ultimately, the biggest barrier to having long-term stable affordable housing for folks is that we don't have enough affordable housing in the state. Uh, In the county of Los Angeles, the estimate is that we need 509 additional affordable units, units that are affordable to people making uh, 30% of the area median income or less. Um, And... Nobody is talking about constructing or
0: building or creating units on anything close to
1: that scale. When you said
0: 500, 500, 509, you meant 509,000.
1: Sorry. Yes. 509,000. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a huge challenge to think about how we would do something on that scale. But that's, if you wanted to solve homelessness, that's the solution. Half a million units that are affordable and, uh, to people who are low income in the state. Um, and any of them can afford to pay part of, part of the rent. But many of them can't afford to pay the whole thing. most of them can't afford to pay what a market rate apartment would would cost. Um, so it's a complicated problem, but ultimately you're right that's that that's the solution and that's not a legal services solution. that's a a, a big picture policy decision about you know how are we going to get there and and are we willing to commit the, the resources and prioritize?
0: Adam, thank you you are you are on the front line of these critical issues. I do want to thank you. I also want to say to our to our listeners. Uh, that we've had a very interesting time talking about many of the issues involved here. If you'd like CLE credit uh, for this period, and if you go to the website dailyjournal.com, dailyjournal.com is outside the Daily Journal paywall. You don't need to be a subscriber. And you will not only be able to listen to this podcast uh, on it, as you may have through that or iTunes, but on that website is a CLE test that you can fill out electronically, send it into the Daily Journal, and you may receive one-hour credit for having listened to the podcast. In addition, if you're a subscriber to the Daily Journal, there is a treasure trove of material, including stories and writings on the Inner City Law Center, on Adam, uh, on all the issues we discussed. Uh, You can search them, uh, you can bookmark them, you can use them for research, uh, and a huge amount of information and material on these issues. If you're not a subscriber and you wish access to those materials, at dailyjournal.com, you will easily see the blue button that indicates the way to bring you to the page where you can subscribe. But having said all this, the most important thing now is to thank Adam Murray. Uh, Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for taking the time to do this. Uh, This has been a discussion of some of the most critical issues that our society faces. Legal services are right at the center of it, and Adam Murray is right at the center of the people in legal services dealing with these issues. Adam, thank you so much for being on the podcast.